Hey guys, welcome to Trinity Church Online. For more information, please visit us at ourtrinity.org or you can find us on Facebook at Trinity Church of Wheat Ridge or even on Instagram at Trinity Church CO. No matter where you are today, we are glad that you have joined us here. How's everyone doing today? I'm going to trip over something one of these days, and it is going to be glorious. I just know it. <laughs> Face plant, yeah, that's, that's what you wish, Kathy. You, you know. <laughs> so I hope everyone's doing well today. Um, man, I just I love that it's finally fall. Uh, I was afraid that it was going to just be summer for every day, and then all of a sudden it's going to snow, and just the snow will never leave. So uh, I'm glad that it's fall. Yesterday was beautiful. Today's supposed to be beautiful. Um, and I'm excited about it. I'm also uh, excited about the word that we're going to be looking at today, but I, I want to uh, I want to thank you guys. Um, the the few weeks before, you guys had uh, an envelope in the bulletin, and you guys were um, collecting just as a gift for Andrea and I, um, and we're we're very grateful. Uh, it was it was an amazing thing. Uh, you guys, honestly, you 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 went above and beyond anything that I would have even thought of happen. Uh, if I got nothing, I would have been happy. But man. <laughs> we are so incredibly thankful, um, and uh, it's going. It's definitely going towards our house. We're we're still kind of in the position where we have boxes everywhere, and we're still trying to figure out things and uh, moving, painting, and all this stuff. But uh, it was an awesome thing. So for my wife and I, we we thank you very much um, for for the gifts that you guys have given. And so what we're going to do is we're looking at Revelation chapter three. All right. So turn to Revelation. We're to the second to last church or the sixth church in our study. So turn to Revelation chapter 3. Just kind of a recap to uh, what we looked at last week, because I'm going to kind of tie it in a, uh, quite a bit. Uh, as I was studying with this church, I, I found some similarities between them. And it wasn't a, it was similarities in the opposite, though. Like, oh, this church did this, and this church didn't do this. This church didn't do this, and this church did it. So, um, so I'm going to kind of recap a little bit what we talked about for those that uh, were here and may not remember. Or if you weren't here, uh, you know, you can check it out on Facebook. We have it online. Uh, and this will give you kind of a very quick rundown of what we had talked about. But last week, we looked at the church of Sardis. The church of Sardis. Sardis was, a, at one point, a very incredibly wealthy town. All right, it was the capital of Lydia. But we had talked about and looked at, they were living in the past. All right, an earthquake had destroyed them. They had been overrun by, by many different nations. And they were living in the past. They were living in the glory days. Well, we also were taking a look at the church and seeing that the church was doing the same thing. The church was looking in the, in the past and living in their glory days. But they were ignoring the present and we had read the verse where it says they were alive in name. They had a reputation for being alive, but they were in fact dead. They were dead. Jesus found their works incomplete. And we saw with that church that there was very little commendation. There was very little uh, encouragement. Uh, the only thing was like, hey, there's, you have a little bit that's faithful still right now, and it's dying, so you need to get on top of that. And, and, and revive that again because that is the only life and it is very little. Well, that was the church of Sardis. Today we're going to look at the church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. No, right? The church of Philadelphia. This church can be characterized or titled as the faithful church. All right? It's characterized by revival 
and evangelism. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter that you had shown the Apostle John and that he has written down, God. Lord, I pray that you will help us to learn from this word. God, that today wouldn't just be some history lesson, some, some topical speech. Lord, that it would be something that we apply to our hearts and that it would change our lives because your word does that. Father, it is by the Holy Spirit that we can practice our gifts and understand this word. And so we have the spirit of truth, so I pray that we would listen to it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so the church in Philadelphia. All right, the church in Philadelphia. First thing we're going to look at is the destination. The destination, all right? This is found in verse 7. So uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So the church of Philadelphia was about 30 miles southeast of Sardis. About 30 miles southeast of Sardis. Well, like Sardis, uh, Philadelphia experienced quite a few of the same things. All right? They were both destroyed in A.D. 17 by an earthquake. All right? They're only 30 miles apart. They were both destroyed by this, this massive earthquake. They were also both rebuilt by Tiberius Caesar. So they kind of have the same history a little bit, okay? We also see that Philadelphia was situated on a main route of the imperial post from Rome. All right, so uh, I had to look this up a little bit. I wasn't fully aware of what the Imperial Post was, and so I did a little bit of research. Uh, and what this was is it was a route that would connect the Roman Empire together. And within that route, they had cities that were set up uh, that would uh, help with travelers. They would help with travel. All right, they would have people that would ride. They would help with uh, tending to animals, um, do these things. And Philadelphia was part of that route. All right, they provided transportation services, and Philadelphia, being east of Rome, was actually called the Gateway to the East. It was called, to the gateway, it was called Gateway to the East. We also see, uh, when we look through history, that Philadelphia had another nickname, and that was Little Athens. Little Athens. And the reason why is because it had very many temples in that city. All right, you know, with, with Greek mythology, they had temples for everything. Well, Philadelphia had many temples throughout the city of these, these gods, these fake gods. We also see that Philadelphia was the center of the Great Vineyard District. All right, there was, there was a great vineyard there. And so because of that, because of the abundance of wine that was there, drunkenness was, was rampant. All right, it was part of their worship. It was part of their day-to-day -day life. It was just something that they did. Drunkenness was just rampant everywhere. So that's, what, that's where Philadelphia was located. And, and it makes me think of Sardis a little bit because Sardis was this very wealthy, popular city. And, and Philadelphia was fairly similar. All right, it was on the main route. Uh, most trade had, had gone through that city. Wine was a very uh, profitable thing. And so uh, Philadelphia was similar in that way. How many of you know what the term Philadelphia means? 
A lot of people, right? Especially in America, we usually know what Philadelphia means because we refer to the city in Pennsylvania as what? Brotherly love, right? The city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. And that's what Philadelphia means. It says love for the brethren. Love for the brethren, okay? That's what Philadelphia means. Throughout church, and at least me growing up in church, and I imagine it's been the same for you, we have been taught to love one another, right? Would you say that's true? I would hope so, right? Uh, that, that's probably one of the main commands, right? Or that is the main command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so we, we usually teach to love each other. Right? 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Our love for each other is what shows this world that we are from God, that we are of God. But it's not enough to just love each other. See, there's a lot more people in this world than who are in this building right now. So it's not enough to just love each other. We must love a lost world, and seek to reach them. This church in Philadelphia, they were in a prime location to reach a lost world. I mean, the city was called Little Athens, right? They had false god after false god after false god, temples and, and, and other buildings of worship all over the place for false gods, and they were put right in the middle of it. They had a great place for them to evangelize and reach a lost world, to show love other than to themselves. And as we look through this church, I believe they did a good job. I think they did well. So that was the destination. Let's take a look at the description of Christ. In verse 7, we read, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So let's look at how Jesus describes himself in this passage. The first thing is that Jesus calls himself the Holy One. He calls himself the Holy One. Ultimately, what Jesus is doing here is he's calling himself God. He is saying that I am God. Well, being the Holy One, what that means is that his actions are holy, his character is holy, his words are holy. His purposes are holy. Everything about him is holy. And the only person that that could be is God. Jesus is making a statement that he is God right here. And this holiness, what it does is he sets himself apart from everything else and nothing can be compared to him. Jesus says, I am the one that has no equal. I have no rival. I am holy. Jesus also calls himself the true one. The true one. What he's saying here is, I alone am God. He alone is God. Jesus is saying is, I'm the genuine, authentic, not a duplicate. I am God. See, in that day, they, had, they, they were faced with hundreds of gods, right? There were, there were idols that were built, statues, entire temples given over to gods. And Jesus is saying, I alone am God. Only me. All these other ones are fake. Only Jesus would claim and could claim that he is the true God. So he alone is God and he alone is the true God. But let's look at the third description here. And it's, it's a pretty interesting one, right? Jesus refers to himself as the key of David. Refers to himself as the key of David. So we would probably, you know, 
all say amen to Jesus as God and Jesus is alone as God, right? And that's all an amen thing, but this key of David is extremely important for you and me, and especially for a church, right? So let's all turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Let's look at what key of David, what this is referring to, Isaiah chapter 11. Starting in verse 1, the word of God says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide, dis- or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity uh, for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Verse 1 right here, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? David's father, right? David's father. This verse is saying from Jesse or from David, there will be a descendant, one that comes out. And as you read these descriptions, right, it sounds a lot like a just judge, as a righteous judge, as a savior, Well, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke 1, 32 to 33 reads, He will be great, and he will be called the son of the Most High, and the Lord God will, will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. See, there's this prophecy that a Savior, a Messiah, will come through the line of David. All right, and he will obtain the throne that David sits on. He will become king. But even more so, this kingdom, his kingship, will never end. It will go on for eternity. Jesus is that savior. Jesus is that king. Can I get an amen to that? Jesus is the one that has fulfilled this prophecy. He has fulfilled the law. And that is what he's saying. I have the key of David Jesus has come to save his people, and no man gets to the Father but by him. He is the one that has fulfilled this. So what Jesus is saying to this missionary-minded church is that he presents himself as the one and only God, the one and only Messiah, and the one and only that can open the doors to evangelism. It is only through him that anyone can get to the Father, and so it is through him that doors are opened. He is the Davidic Messiah and has control to the entrance of the kingdom. Well, do you know what's a really cool thing that, that, that I see is that Jesus still, in fact, is fulfilling that covenant today. Even he's, what he's doing is fulfilling it beyond the Jewish people. When we read Isaiah here, it's referring to the Jewish people. But praise the Lord, he is fulfilling that beyond the Jewish people and to the Gentile. Jesus is our Messiah People are still being saved today. And that's an awesome thing. And that's how Jesus refers to himself. I alone am God. I am the true God. And I am your Savior. So that's the description of Jesus. Let's look at the commendation of this church. 
How does Jesus commend this church? Starting in verse 8 of Revelation 3. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Right here, and, and, and I believe it's through every letter, Jesus says, I know your works, or I know your deeds. Jesus is aware of the works that we do. Jesus is aware. He's not far off, like, oh, I wonder how that church is doing. Oh, man, I better check up. I haven't seen what they're doing. No, he's aware all the time of what's going on. Last week, and this is a similarity that I had mentioned earlier, we looked at Sardis, right? And when Jesus says, I know your works, and he says, they fall incomplete before God. I look at your works, and they are incomplete before your Father in heaven. But Jesus, what he does is he praises Philadelphia for their work. He praises them. He says, I know your work, and you are doing well. He praises them for this work of evangelism. He put them in this location, right? And Sardis, the same thing. They weren't in a Christian community, right? They were in in an unsaved area, but they still fell short of their job. Philadelphia did not. They were reaching the world around them. Jesus has placed them before an open door. He placed them before an open door. Open door throughout the New Testament many times speaks of opportunity for Christian ministry. We see that, and, and, and it's not all the time, but many times when we see uh, the term of a door being open, it's usually referring to Christian ministry. In, Col- in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, it reads, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Pray for a door to be open that we would declare the mystery of Christ. Well, this church had great opportunities for evangelism, right? I'm sure next door, right, there was probably a temple to, I don't know, Artemis or something, right next door. Do you think they had a good opportunity to share the mystery of Christ with them? Yeah. That door was open. Jesus had opened it. So we see within the city itself that they had great opportunities, and they took advantage of those opportunities. But also the historical church, and this is what we'll look at in the the, the prophetic section a little more detail, there were great opportunities for evangelism, for missionary work, and they went through the open door. They used the door that Jesus had opened for them. Well, like many churches, right, the church in Philadelphia had obstacles, there were obstacles. The obstacle, the first one, was their lack of strength. In verse 8, it says, I know you have but little power. Church in Philadelphia, I don't believe they were a large church. I don't think they were necessarily a strong church when it came to numbers or maybe even uh, financial influence or power. I think they were probably a smaller church. Here's another similarity here. I don't think they look like the church at Sardis at all. Right? I think the church in Sardis was, was pretty lively. Was be, right? They had a reputation of being alive. They probably had many programs, many opportunities to serve within the church, but Jesus said, you aren't faithful with that. In Philadelphia, he, has, he says, you are faithful. Even though it was a smaller church, they were faithful and full of life. 
I believe this church, that they were unafraid of preaching the word. They came up and proclaimed the truth that was the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would preach it, and they would also, as they walked about the town, right, they would have a name tag that would say Jesus Christ. They weren't ashamed of his name. They weren't ashamed to carry the name of Jesus. See, there was these similarities with Sardis, but very different. Very different. It's quite the opposite. What we can learn with Philadelphia is that size or strength does not matter. But faith in God's commands does. That's where you can find true strength. See, as Christians, we're to rejoice in our weaknesses. Maybe that's strength. But see, God is found strong in our weaknesses. And so if we are to be faithful to his commands, he will be pleased with us. One thing that I love seeing is when, when a small uh, community of believers, when something ginormous just happens within their congregation, right? Maybe they make a huge impact in their community, even though it's a small community of believers, right? Because not everything a, a, a small church does is going to be small, Right? I think God can open up doors to where it's a grand, honestly, just a grand uh, uh, work that we can do for him. And the reason why we can do that is because not only is Jesus the one that opens the door, but Jesus is the one that gets us through the door. It is through Jesus' power that we can actually do these things and be faithful. So Jesus gave them an open door, but he would make sure that they were able to walk through it. He wouldn't say, oh, yep, here's an opportunity. You better figure out how to, you know, get through there and, and, and use this opportunity for God's glory. He gave them the tools, even if they weren't strong. So their first obstacle was their lack of strength, right? They could have looked at that and said, nah, we just can't do it. Like, that's a pretty big, you know, maybe go to Sardis. They're the live church, right? But God is like, no, you have the tools. And Philadelphia said, okay. We're going to run with it. So the first obstacle was their lack of strength. Their second was opposition from Jews in the city. All right, verse 9 says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. See, they were facing opposition against those who claimed to worship the same God. They really claimed to worship the same God. They would say, yes, this is the same God, but they were neglecting Jesus. They didn't view Jesus as God. Well, how does Jesus refer to this synagogue? He refers to it as a synagogue of Satan. He refers to it as a synagogue of Satan. Listen, church, any other religion, any other belief, any other pastor, any, of, any other church that claims to be a church that teaches contrary or against the gospel of Jesus Christ that is found in this word is of Satan. It is a synagogue of Satan. See, Jesus referred to his own people, the Jewish people, as a synagogue of Satan. If we find that it is going contrary to the gospel, it is not of God. It is of Satan. Well, verse 9, we, we see at the end of verse 9 that there is prophecy that one day these Jews will recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. But the one thing that they recognize in that is, is he's not only the Messiah to the Jews, but he is the Messiah to the Gentiles as well. See, I don't know how many of you are of Jewish ancestry. I, I'm not. 
I am so glad that Jesus is a Messiah of the Gentiles because that includes me. Jesus came to save you and me and not just the Jews. And so uh, Jesus prophesies and says, hey, this will happen. They will recognize that I am your Savior as well, that I have loved you as well. All right, so that's the commendation. Let's look at the rebuke for this church, all right? The rebuke. You see where it is? If you guys, you probably have notes, right, that say there's no rebuke. <laughs> You're like, I already know, you know. <laughs> that's a cool thing. There's no rebuke for the church in here. There's none that can be found. Now, that doesn't mean that they were perfect by any means, all right? It doesn't mean that this church was perfect and, and without its faults, okay? They were of human. They weren't perfect. But like we had talked about before, they were found faithful. They saw the opportunities that God gave them, the open doors, and whew, they ran right through it. They're like, oh, this is an opportunity to, to reach this group, to reach these people, and they used those open doors. So they were found faithful. So Jesus does not have a rebuke for them. He says, you are faithful. So let's go past rebuke now, right? Let's look at the exhortation. The exhortation, verse 11. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Jesus saying is, hold on to what you have. Right? He's encouraging them, hold on tightly to what you have. I know, I, uh, I usually, I like to wear hats. Um, I don't know why, I just do. Uh, I think it, it really started when I was in college. I went to the beach one day and went in the water and then got sunburned on the top of my head really bad. And I was like, I never want to experience that again. And so I usually wear hats. I don't wear them to church. Uh, but if you see me throughout the week, I'll, I'm probably wearing a hat usually. Uh, well, there's times that it's super windy. So a couple weekends ago, my, my wife and I, we went up to a farm uh, in La Sea, I think, uh, and it was windy. Well, I'm standing there just trying to hold my hat on my head, right? Or I would even maybe turn it backwards and kind of put it at an angle so then the wind couldn't catch it right. I was holding on tight. And there would be times that I would, like, forget for a second that I need to hold on to it, and I would feel it start to lift off my head, so I need to pull it back down, hold on to it tight. Because the moment I let go, it's gone, right? And then I'm uh, doing this, trying to chase thing, trying to step on it just to, you know, stop it. I'm holding on tight to it. What Jesus is telling them to do is hold on tight to what they have. These aren't things that they've gained. These aren't personal possessions, right? What he's saying is to hold on to their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. That is what they have been given. They have been given a joy because of their salvation. They have been given a hope. And so he's saying to hold on to those. He's saying, I am coming soon, so patiently endure these obstacles. All right? He's not referring to their salvation. He's not saying, hey, you better hold on to your salvation because someone is going to take your salvation if you don't. What he's saying is that they would lose their joy in the Lord. Right? They would forget and, and, and eventually fall away from their faithfulness and service simply because of this opposition, because they could grow weary. Hold tight to what you have. There's this thing, and I've seen it at carnivals before where it's like a pole, and you, you, you would hold on to it, and you would be off the ground, and they say, if you can hold on for 100 seconds, you'll get $100. And there's very few people that actually do it. 
It's actually a really hard thing to do. Now the pole's not a solid pole, it actually kind of moves. And so you're up there and you're just holding yourself straight and it's just moving back and forth. And not, not a lot of people do it. They get around the, well, I wouldn't get around this far, but like 60 seconds in, right? They get like 60 seconds in and then you just see them sort of like kind of shaking and then they try to, try to adjust, but then they over adjust and they, they try to do these things. Well, what we can see, you're like, what does this have to do with this, right? Those people are getting weary. They're getting tired, and it's getting harder and harder to hold on. But Jesus is saying, find your strength in me and hold on tight. Because the moment you let go, with that example, you lose 100 bucks. But the moment you let go and just give in to the weariness, man, you, you, you begin to lose your faithfulness. You begin to lose that joy of your salvation. Right? And it's not because it has left you, it's because you didn't hold tight. And you let the worries of this world and the opposition of this world take you away. So he says, hold on tight because I am coming soon. Right? Hold on to these crowns. Crown is, a crown is for those that persevere. We've seen that through many of the verses in Revelation, right? A crown is given to those that persevere. He is telling them that there will be times that they will grow weary. Right? It's not going to just be a walk in a park, this, this evangelistic life, this missionary-minded life. It's not going to be easy all the time. There's going to be times that you are tired and want to just maybe put the crown on the side for right now. But the moment that happens, it will get snatched up. We need to be aware and, and hold on tight. And that's what Jesus encourages them to do. Hold on because I am coming soon. Let's take a look at Jesus' promise to them now. In verse 10, Revelation 3, it reads, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And uh, Go down to verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So a couple of things Jesus promises here is Jesus, is promise, Jesus promises to keep them from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth. All right, we know this isn't referring to a local trial because it says the whole earth. It involves the whole earth. Some commentaries say it could actually be referring to the Roman persecution that's coming, right? That's very eminent uh, in the next probably, you know, well, it's actually going on at that time. And so this Roman trial, but what we really see is ultimately it is referring to the tribulation before Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom on earth. That is ultimately what it is referring to. Now, many Bible scholars have varying views on the church during the times of tribulation, right? It's, there, there's a, a variety of views. Some people believe the church will be taken before. Some people believe the church will be taken after. And some people believe the church could be taken in the midst of it, in the middle of it. But many believe that the church will be present through the tribulation period. The words keep you from here, can, uh, it can mean to keep you from undergoing or to keep you through it. See, there is, even though there isn't a clear-cut Bible verse that says exactly when the rapture would happen, there isn't a verse that says on this day or this part of the truth or this, there's not a clear-cut verse. 
one thing we can all agree on is that this church, Philadelphia, will not go through it. They will not go through it. Because God promised that they will not go through the tribulation, and God keeps his promises. See, God is true to his word, and he says you will not go through it. So whether the rapture happens before, whether it happens after tribulation, whether it happens in the midst of it, we know the church that's going on, it's not Philadelphia, because God keeps his promises. So that's the first promise, that he will keep them from the time of tribulation. The second one is that Jesus also promises that God will honor them. God will honor them. Verse 12, let's read that again. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now, as you read that, you're like, what's, what's honoring about that, right? Like, I mean, I guess that's kind of a cool thing, but what does that mean? Well, back then, all right, and maybe some of you today, how many of you uh, are like a contractor or do like construction type work or an architect, builder, anybody like that at all? All right, well, this may not apply to you, all right. Well, back in that day, Good construction was something that was to admire. Man, if something was constructed well and beautifully and, and, and it was supported well, it was an admirable thing. All right, there's a couple reasons. The first one is, as we talked about earlier, this area was earthquake prone. All right? Do you think they would appreciate a good construction after going through an earthquake? Probably, right? They're like, man, my house is completely flattened. And then you look over and it's like this one is just solid and People are just enjoying their, you know, like, man, why don't I have that house? See, they admired good construction because they dealt with these earthquakes. But they also know that, that at that time, uh, people in ancient cities, they would be honored by having a pillar built up and they would have their names inscribed on it. So they would have a, a building built and a pillar would be built in that building and an individual's name would be inscribed on that pillar to honor that individual. Right? Sometimes we see that now. Right? Sometimes we see people's names uh, inscribed on things, right? and that's to honor them, to recognize whether they supported it, uh, whatever it may be. You would see that as an honorable thing. Well, back then it was truly a sign of honor is to have your name inscribed on a pillar. Well, in heaven, what we find out is that there, is no, there will be no temple in heaven. Revelation 21, verse 22 reads, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There will, be a, there will be no temple in heaven. Warren Wearsby says this, God's pillars are not made of stone because there is no temple in the heavenly city. His pillars are faithful people who bear his name for his glory. The pillars that will be established in heaven are faithful people. Faithful people, and these, these, these faithful men and women, they will be there, and they will have the name of God inscribed on them. They'll have the name of the new Jerusalem inscribed on them. They'll have the, name, the new name of Jesus inscribed on them. What, what he's saying is, you will be a pillar in my kingdom, and I will claim you. My name will be written on you. And so Jesus promises that God will honor them when they reach heaven. So let's look at the prophetic application now. What is the prophetic application? This church is the great missionary era of the church. All right, the time period is, is roughly 1750 A.D. to 1925 A.D., all right? That's less than 100 years ago. 
1925. See, this was a great, there was a great missionary movement that was going on during this time. You, you may recognize some of these names, but people by the name of William Carey, Hudson Taylor, Charles Finney. See, these were all individuals in that did mission work all over the world and at their homes. Great missionaries of the time. We also see this was a time of great revivals. All right, there was George Whitfield, John Wesley. They had their outside gospel preaching ministries. All right? And I've done a little bit of research on the guys, and man, they're awesome people. You know, I wish I was around to hear the, the, the gospel that they were preaching. It was, it was an awesome thing. We also have people uh, by the names of Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon. See, they would host revival conferences. There was great revival at this time, a great awakening. And although we still see remnants of that in today's society, we see remnants of it. I believe, and in, in, we see that it began to wane shortly around World War II. It just sort of fell off. The reasons why we see its signs of waning is that it's just a lack of a dominant force in, in, in the church today. Unfortunately, we see churches more and more teaching less and less about the gospel. Right? It's less about needing a savior and more about you know, what makes you feel good. We see, unfortunately, in churches that there's less evangelism. Evangelism has become more of just social work. How can I help my community? Well, the best way you can help your community is reaching them for Jesus. They need a savior. And so it's begun to wane. So how does this apply to us? Where is our application in here? A simple question, are you reaching the world with the good news? Are you reaching the world? Are you evangelizing? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is a familiar verse, right? Especially in this church. It's the Great Commission. Jesus is saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus, all authority has been given to him. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. All right, that's the end of the book of Matthew. Jesus is telling his disciples, I have taught you it all. Now go and evangelize. Go and tell the other people. Go and make disciples. Go and do these things. The Church of Philadelphia, they did it well. There was no rebuke towards it. They evangelized, they preached the gospel. What about your own heart? What about your own life? Are you doing that? So we talked about Philadelphia. Philadelphia wasn't a great, big, grand church. They were weak. But God found them faithful. See, you, you, you can't make the statement of, I don't have the gift of evangelism. God doesn't say, if you have the gift of evangelism, go, no, it is all our responsibility to go and make disciples, to go and witness to the world. Well, I don't feel led to go to some foreign country right now. Man, go to your neighbor. Witness to someone. At the bottom of your notes here, it says, every heart without Christ is a mission field. Every heart with Christ is a missionary. And I love that. We don't have to go to some far, right, some, some exotic place in the world to be a missionary. Man, just walk down the street. 
begin living the life of a Christian and, and, and telling people, hey, this is my savior. Philadelphia, they were in the midst of a, of a world that was against them, but they stood strong. Will you stand strong? Let's pray. Father, you have given us a great command. A command to go to the, the farthest corners of this earth and to proclaim your name. To proclaim that Jesus is Lord of all. To proclaim the good news that it is by grace that we are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Father, we rejoice in that. We thank you that we can claim an inheritance with Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice. Father, help us to hold fast to this joy. Hold fast to this, this mission that you have given us. God, I pray if we are weary, that we would find strength in you. God, that we would find strength in, in the community of believers that you have given us. Help us to not only love each other, but to love this world like you have loved this world. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.